What is up, everybody? This is Dr. Joe Armstrong, and you are listening to part two of our time with Dr. Kim Stackhouse-Lawson, who is the director of Ag Next at Colorado State University. We had too much information, too much great conversation to stick it all in one episode. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode, I encourage you to do so because we are going to jump right in to where we left off in the conversation from last week. Thank you for listening. Pitter-patter. Let's get to it. I think it's time to switch gears a little bit, uh, just kind of go over some of the the things that we've been reading about and and had questions on that we thought would be valuable to our listeners when it comes to CSU Ag Next and some of the the things in general that we we use as terms in the industry. And one of those things is adaptive livestock management. So first of all, what what is adaptive livestock management, and then how does that fit into the the context of sustainability? We define adaptive livestock management as livestock grazing that is adjusted based on forage availability, weather, wildlife patterns, bird breeding grounds or breeding times, um, riparian areas, et cetera. So it's at its basic form, right? It's adjusting livestock grazing management according to the region that you're in. The, the current weather conditions and forage availability that's there and taking into account the other important life and ecosystems that exist on, on that particular operation. So I think the interesting thing about adaptive um, livestock management is that in Minnesota, it may mean more intensive rotational grazing. And in Colorado, it's gonna mean something totally different to our producers, right? They're grazing in larger traps, the acres per animal are much greater, you know, so it's, it's just, it's allowing those place-based management decisions to um, occur and to make sure they're informed, right, with, with data. In the sustainability space, I'm actually, I'm actually really excited about a lot of things that are happening, especially as it relates to methane, which is kind of interesting, um, just because that's the way my brain works. So I'm sure you guys are all aware of a lot of the innovations that are, you know, coming out in the space of adaptive livestock management. So precision herding, for example, like using GPS collars, we're doing some work with ARS where we're actually layering real-time forage information, GPS collaring the cattle, and they have bite halters on them. So we're trying to estimate like intake from bites and also control how and when cattle are grazing the forage. So if we can understand through real-time satellite imagery, right, when forage is growing, can we direct the animals through the GPS collar to that forage in real time where it's higher quality? And do we actually see reductions in methane? So that's some of the cool work we're trying to do. And we're getting at multiple things with, right, we're trying to understand just Railroad baseline emissions of methane on grazing animals in the short grass prairie steppe where we're at, but then also like how can we manipulate it and can, and can we? And we're also doing other things like comparing amp grazing, more rotational grazing to continuous grazing, um, and seeing if that changes methane emissions or intensities. So I think there's a lot of really neat things that are taking place in the space of kind of grazing and sustainability, soil carbon sequestration is of course a huge topic. Well, I guess what I love about it the most is that, you know, our our arid landscapes maintain 20% of the globe's soil organic carbon. And that's incredible, like incredible. And we know 
that if we graze them, as long as we don't overgraze, they don't flux the carbon. So the, the carbon is in a total kind of maintenance state. And we also get food off of that. Like it's, it's cool. That's awesome. And, you know, the best way to maintain that carbon is to keep the grass right side up. And the way we keep the grass right side up is to keep those farmers and ranchers profitable, period. So there's a lot of really cool win-win type work we can do in the space of sustainability and grazing. That's something that I think we we all have a passion for here, especially uh, is is trying to figure out what works in each region and why and whether or not research done somewhere else can be applied in your region, because that's something we struggle with a lot, especially when most of the, the research power is in states where there's just more cattle. And so it's a completely different system, though. It's hard to take a bunch of feedlot data from Nebraska and apply it to Minnesota because our feedlots are different. I'm really into this place-based research, especially when it's this this applied. And part of that is this adaptive livestock management. So great topic to to learn more about. If you haven't heard that term, definitely throw it in the old Google and 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 see what comes up and start reading about it. One of the other things we've been reading about is, and, and we've talked about resiliency on this podcast before when it relates to mental health and how that relates to your operation and how you can be resilient. And and you guys talk about that quite a bit, that we need to increase that resiliency of operations. So what does that mean to you? And then how does that really fit into, are we re- increasing the re- resiliency of the operation itself or the people or both? Great question. And something our group is really passionate about. And I think, you know, when you think about the challenges our producers face, right, it doesn't matter, our just farmers and ranchers face across the globe. It's unpredictable, right? Things like weather, things like markets, things like labor availability. I mean, they're constantly challenged. And yet somehow they continue to deliver food to the masses, right? I mean, somehow they continue to push forward. And, you know, beef producers in the arid west where, where we're at are, are are no different. And and yet I'm not I'm not sure we're we've ever seen them challenged like we're about to see them challenged, right? As as this climate changes, as these market forces become more pressing, as there are fewer and fewer people actually producing food, right? We're at now what what 1.7, I think, percent of the population produces food for the rest, right? All of those challenges, whether they be, you know, real or emotional or perceived, it doesn't matter, right? There's still, there's still challenges. And so when we talk about resiliency, it's long-term success of producers and including profitability, generational transfer, climate adaptation, the list goes on and on. And I think it's, to your point, it's the people, it's the operation, it's the community. I mean, this out-migration that we're seeing in rural communities and lack of infrastructure for things like school. I have a friend who ranches in Southeast Colorado. She drives her children to school one and a half hours, one way. I mean, she's there with her parents, right? Their operation is substantial. It's beautiful. But what, how is she supposed to do that? So yeah. they have bought a house in town and she leaves during the week. Those are the kinds of questions that that nothing I study around methane, frankly, are going to going to answer. And yet, if if we're not saying those things out loud, that that's a problem and needs to be addressed. I'm not sure any of our research can truly address right the whole the that whole continuum. 
but it's our job to talk about it. And it's our job to say our producers, frankly, deserve better. And it's about to get even tougher for them. I don't I don't have any solutions in that space, but we we care deeply about it and we want to elevate how important that is whenever we can. Yeah, staying power of an operation is really how I think about resiliency of an operation. Can it can it just be around and still function and be profitable, not just in a five or ten year space, but we're talking through generations and and even if that that generation passing isn't to a child or a family member figuring out how that transfers to someone else who wants to be in that agricultural space and keep that that mission going and that operation viable. All right, we're switching topics again. Bradley, you're up. We've certainly talked a lot about beef and uh, Herefords and, and a lot of that. And, and maybe I'm a little harsh on the dairy industry and it seems like the beef, uh, maybe they just do a better job at marketing and trying to get out that we're, we're working on this sort of sustainability effort. But what's the status in the dairy industry? Do you know where, where might that end up as far as the dairy world? It seems like the dairy gets picked on a lot from a sustainability standpoint. What, what's the status? You know, I think dairy really has the most robust industry strategy for for sure. Um, they were early um, adopters of sustainability and have pushed very, very hard through their sort of um, central kind of organizational efforts. And um, they've done some incredible work. They're certainly way ahead of beef in terms of research. Now, it's a little bit of a different beast, right? And it's important to recognize that the inputs and outputs comparing the two, like, yeah, there's the same animal that's being used for food cultivation, but the system is exceptionally different. And as such, right, we see, we see emissions very pretty substantially. So in beef, of course, right, we know that the majority of the emissions are happening in that cow-calf sector, but we also include, and when we do life cycle assessment, we include everything. And the same happens within dairy. And at the same time, they tend to be a little bit more self-contained. And as such, a little bit easier to manipulate. And to Joe's point, a little bit easier to make place-based, right? These systems and the beef systems too have originated more place-based, but there's more kind of infrastructure to support those self-contained place-based dairy systems today than in comparison to beef. Because they're self-contained, they're not quite as complex or different, right? Between between regions, there's more similarities um, between the systems. And I think that has helped them. And because they're self-contained, solutions are very different for them, right? So digesters work and are beneficial. And we do see more emissions coming from manure in dairy systems, significantly more, right? So the, the importance of enteric emissions is you know, it, it takes up less of a percent of their total footprint. So they're able to engineer their way um, into some solutions that that have been very profitable for dairy producers as well. Now, do we still have the same issues in enteric methane? Yes. And at the same time, we see mitigation strategies work better in dairy cows because the diet is different. They eat more, right? There's more kind of methanogenesis happening. So our ability to decrease it is, is it's actually easier um, from a research question. It's not quite as hard as we see in beef systems, specifically confined beef systems. So, so feed yards, you know, you got to really have something that works for us to, for us to pick up 
pick up the difference. And in, in dairy systems, you know, you can pick up a 10 to 12% difference in methane mitigation pretty quickly. So yeah, I think there's some interesting um, comparisons and there's certainly still a lot to be discovered in both systems, but it, you know, dairy has done a, a tremendous job really looking at greenhouse gas mitigation and really trying to understand where opportunities may exist in those self-contained units. Their checkoff program is much more robust than beefs. And that's been, I think, a huge driver for that. And they have funded research. Dairy has been very brave and have funded a lot of this research. And so they're not as far behind. I think, you know, that gap we talked about isn't quite as as extreme in dairy as it is in beef. Well, Kim, I think you just won over all of our dairy listeners. So well done on that. (laughs) We have discussed so many things today and and covered a lot of different topics and it's you know been a lot of us asking you questions so we're curious what questions do you have for us yeah so what do you guys hear are the biggest concerns from your producers in your region when they talk about sustainability what are they worried about what are their pressures they're always worried about and, and rightly so uh the perception is that to be more sustainable it's going to cost more whether that's time or money or other resources. And I think that is our biggest barrier on the producer side of things is to convince them that there are strategies and systems and there is that holy grail there of a recommendation that actually allows that operation to have more time or more money, be more profitable, more efficient, and be more sustainable. And that and that's what you've been talking about this whole time is that 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 exists and we're just we're looking for it. But that's the biggest pushback I get immediately besides just the stubborn Minnesotan that says don't tell me what to do. Besides that, it's it's that the the immediate reaction is it's going to cost me more money or more time. Yeah. And in fairness, it can't be burdened more. I, I agree with Joe. I think that's that's a lot about the cost. Um, you know, some worry about the regulations that are going on and how do we fix this? And, you know, it, I, I think about it from the aspects out, you know, I was just in California and, and learning uh, out there with talking with farmers about some of the environmental regulations. How do we do this? And they're very progressive and, and trying to solve those issues because they have to if they want to stay in business. And and sometimes those are on a much larger scale. So, you know, farms that I've talked to, if you're, if you got 75 cows and you're a dairy operation, you know, how do I make this work with 75 cows from a smaller perspective? You know, we can use scale and do these things, but from a smaller farm, yeah, we're, we're, you know, what are the efficiencies that go into that? So that's one thing that I think they worry about from a, size perspective is how do we deal with these issues on a smaller scale? Yeah. I'm going to kind of be the the mean one, but we all know that they're out there. The producers that just say, I've been doing it this way for 40 yeah. years and I'm not going to change it now. Yeah. Probably the number one pushback I get from people is just, it's, I, I don't want to do all the extra work, you know, and, and have that extra burden and, you know, something you've referred to several times here today. Um, so I think that, and, and I echo Joe on the cost. Um, and I think tied in with that too, things like land access, like some producers who feel, you know, I'd need more land to, to do some more sustainable things. There is no land for me to get. 
in the overall picture of sustainability as well. It's hard for, for anyone, including farmers, I think, to navigate some of the conflicting interests we see, right? So, you know, in sustainability, we tie in things like renewable energy and all of that. And, you know, and they're like, how how can I make all the moves to that? Or how can I support some of these things where, you know, they can't get land now because it's owned by a solar farm or something. So, so a lot of those kind of social issues, I think really play a role. Maybe people wouldn't necessarily identify them or label them that way, but I think, yeah, some of that perception piece as well, um, all plays a role in this. Yeah. We hear the same things. Well, Kim, I think I speak for all of us when I say thank you so much yeah. uh, for taking time out of your busy schedule to to join us for this recording. Thanks. Um, we, I think, I again, I think I speak for all of us. We all learned a lot, and Good. I hope our our listeners learn a lot from this episode as well. Awesome. Well, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. There, I think, is the perfect spot to wrap it. So if you have any questions, comments, or scathing rebuttals about today's episode of The Moose Room, you can email those to themooseroom at umn.edu. That's T-H-E-M-O-O-S-R-O-O-M at umn.edu. You can also call and ask us a question on our listener voicemail. If you'd like to do that, you can call 612-624-3610. You can find us on Twitter at UMN Newsroom, and you can also learn more about our work at extension.umn.edu. If you're interested in learning more about CSU Ag Next, you can find them online at agnext.colostate.edu. That's a wrap. Bye. Bye.